Morning, church. Great to see those of you who are here in person. Grateful for all of you joining us online. We have about 70 people in our church, teenagers and a few adults who are traveling back from Gatlinburg this morning, so we pray for their safe travel. I spent all day yesterday in Houston, Texas. I was on a plane to get back here late last night. I had a chance yesterday to speak at an event where I spoke in front of a lot of elders who are representatives of a number of churches in the Houston area. They invited me in just to speak on leadership and and visioning, and to give them some direction and some encouragement. Encouragement. And I've been invited in some of to, into, into some of these spaces with elders over the last couple of months just to be able to work with them. And over the last few months, I've done some reflection on my own life. In my career in ministry, I counted, I have been able to serve with over a hundred elders in my ministry. And I can honestly tell you that I love almost all of those elders. That I, I'm just joking, all right? I, I love all those elders. I've, here at Sycamore View alone, I've probably worked with over 35 elders. And uh, we are blessed with 19 elders right now, men who love God, who love this church, who pour themselves into people. I know the last two years have been really hard for leaders, especially leaders in churches and in organizations. And, and I know in businesses too, the last two years have been hard. And what I try to remind leaders of, and even myself, is that leadership is such a gift. And especially in times of crisis and when times are hard, we are in desperate need of leaders who have character, leaders who are pressing into the heart of God, leaders who lead with integrity and with a very intentional. We're in need of leaders right now. So yesterday was a wonderful opportunity to just be with a lot of these elders to try to strengthen them and to be reminded that right here in this church, we have 19 men pouring into you. I think what makes an elder a great elder isn't that they sit in a room and they make good decisions, but they make a commitment that they want to model a life with and for Christ everywhere they go. And here at this church, we have 19 men who are doing that. But today, I'm not talking about leadership. I'm not talking about elderships. Today, I want to talk about, uh, we're, we're in a series right now called Table Talk. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to bounce around a few different places in the Gospel of John. For four weeks, we're talking about relationships this month. I know when, uh, when you think about the month of February, sometimes we think about uh, a month where there is the Super Bowl, or we think Black History Month, a month to learn from the past and continue to press into the future, or we think about this as a month of love, a month of relationships. And what I'm trying to do this month is to take four weeks where I try to show us how God takes human relationships and uses those images to teach you about who God is, especially when it comes to marriage. So of course God is trying to cultivate healthy marriages and healthy families and healthy people. And there are a lot of different images God uses to describe himself. There are times where God talks about how God is on the throne and we are the worshipers. Or God is on the throne and we are, we are his servants. And then there are so many times when God talks about relationships. God talks about covenant and commitment. And God uses marriage, lang- marriage language to tell you and teach us about who God is. Now, the Gospel of John is different than the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. They tell a lot of the same stories. They were probably building from some of the same sources. John is completely different. He's just out there kind of on his own. And even when it comes to how they tell about the miracles of Jesus or the first miracles they share, when Matthew begins to talk about the miracles of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, it kind of uh, was demon-possessed. Now, it's interesting with Jesus, like his ministry, Jesus didn't go chase around demons everywhere Jesus went. He wasn't some ghostbuster who was like on a mission just to wipe out all the demons. But demons seemed to find Jesus. 
Like most stories, when Jesus is driving out a demon, there's authority that is upon Jesus. Jesus is teaching, and there are demons who come into the presence of Jesus, and it's like they just can't take it anymore. Like the authority coming off of him, the power coming off of him was too much, so they start making noises, and then Jesus drives them out. And Mark and Luke, the first miracle story, is Jesus driving out a demon. But for John... It's, just an, it's an odd story. Like John opens up his gospel and he doesn't tell you about the birth of Jesus. He doesn't tell you about a baptism story of Jesus. He doesn't talk to you about the temptation story. For John, he starts out with poetry and then a really odd miracle. Like it's like John starts out with Shakespeare and then a moment when you're like, what just happened or why did that happen? Because for John, the first miracle in his gospel is Jesus turning water to wine. Now, I know for people, for any of you who grew up in faith traditions where drinking was this taboo, like it was a sin and it could send you straight to hell, like this is probably the miracle you wish you could just erase from all of the Gospels. Like, why does it even have to happen? Who does it even make better? And you think about, I mean, there have been some who have even like literally like watered down the story. Like it really didn't have any alcohol in it. Like it was, it was grape juice. And I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I mean, why could Jesus not have turned, why couldn't he have turned water to coffee? Like, wouldn't that have been a miracle that, like, everybody would have seen that that was a miracle? Or water to sweet tea, or water to Dr. Pepper, or even better, what if Jesus would have turned wine into water? Like, that could have been a miracle for a lot of people. He didn't. It was, it was water to wine. And the first miracle in the Gospel of John doesn't seem to make anyone better, because most miracles, like, every miracle Jesus did... He's either making a mind well, he's setting a mind right with God, or he's healing a body, like there are people who can't walk and Jesus heals their legs. Now they're jumping around. There are people who can't see and Jesus heals their eyes. People who can't hear and Jesus makes it to where they can hear. Or people have hungry bellies, so Jesus uh, performs a miracle and he, en he ends up feeding the masses. But John chapter 2, turning water to wine, doesn't seem to make anyone's life, it doesn't seem to make anything about them better. Like it's just an odd miracle. Now here's the thing with John though, the very last statement in the Gospel of John, the very last sentence in John chapter 21, what John tells you is this, is John says, if I were to try to tell every single story of the miracles of Jesus, there is no book in the world that could hold all of those stories. Like John says, there are so many things Jesus has done that we still don't know about. There's so many healings, so many miracles, so many testimonies that have come from that three years of Jesus' ministry that John says, if I tried to write, write a book about it, no book could have held any of these. Now, if somebody were to make a statement like that to you, and they were to say that if I were to tell every story of the good that came from this man, there's no book that can hold it, but here are the seven stories I've chosen to tell. Don't you think those seven stories would have great importance? So for John, it's not just like he chose any seven. It's like of all the stories out there, here are the seven miracle stories I've chosen to tell you about. And the first one is Jesus going to a wedding and turning water to wine. Now in John chapter 2, verse 11, it tells you, John tells you like this was the first sign of Jesus. He calls it a sign. And weddings are a sign. They always are. Every time I perform a wedding, I try to share, try to share with a couple that this wedding that you were participating in, this is a sign, this is an image that God chooses to use to tell you about who God is like and to tell you about what it's going to be like when heaven and earth merge together in the end when Jesus comes back.
You're participating in a sign. You're participating in a parable. Now, if you were to see and watch and listen to some of the stories Jesus tells about what heaven is like, when Jesus and some of the other writers in the Bible, when they talk about what heaven is like, they use language of weddings or banquets or wines or parties. And most of us, if somebody were to ask you, what is heaven going to be like? You probably wouldn't respond with a wedding or a marriage. But multiple times there are stories in the Bible and from Jesus that, hey, you want to know what heaven is like? You want to know what the fullness of the kingdom of God is like? I want, I want you to think about a wedding. I want you to think about a wedding banquet. Now, John is all about new creation. If you were to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and John chapter 1, verse 1, they, they're so identical. Genesis 1, 1. The very first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the world. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it's in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So in the very beginning in Genesis 1, it's in the beginning God created. And what John wants you to know is that in and through Jesus, there is new creation that is now coming into the world. It's all about new creation. In fact, in John chapter, 15, uh, John chapter 20, verse 15, when Jesus comes out of the grave and he's alive, the resurrected Jesus is there, they confuse Jesus as a gardener. They think he's a gardener, which I don't know what that meant. I don't know if he had, was carrying around flowers or if he had dirt under his fingernails. Like, I don't know, but they thought he was a gardener. And I think this was John's way of letting people know that what Jesus has done through the death, burial, and resurrection, it has reversed everything that went wrong in the garden in the very beginning. Jesus has made all things right. So in the beginning, the very end of Genesis chapter 2 in the creation narrative, you have a wedding. And God is the one who performs that wedding. And in Genesis 2, 23, what Adam says when God provided him with a companion, there's Adam and Eve, and what Adam says is, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In the Hebrew, bone was a sign of strength and flesh is a sign of weakness. So it's like... Adam is saying, when this woman is weak, I will be strong. And when I am weak, she will be strong. It is this companionship. And in Genesis 3, sin enters into the world. Right? The world is cursed. Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. And as you turn chapters from chapter 3 to chapter 4, here is what remains when Adam and Eve leave the garden. A relationship with God and marriage. A relationship with God and marriage. Now, there are a lot of things that God offers us that no other God that anyone who has ever bowed a knee to, a knee to offers other people. God offers so much relationship to people, and God actually shows you time and time again that our God has a heart, a heart that God is willing to give away and to extend to others and to share. All right, so maybe this is a good moment for me to tell a story about a funeral, all right? Because you may be thinking, if we're talking about weddings, why are you going to tell a story about a funeral? And then some of you may be thinking, you've been to weddings before that felt like a funeral, all right? <clears throat> we had a funeral here at the church a few years ago. A woman who didn't attend this church probably hardly even knew about us. 24 years old, and for over 12 years, she had experienced abuse earlier in her life. There was substance abuse. She had a boyfriend who beat her. And then weeks later, some of her wounds got infected. And there was a lot of substance abuse in this too. Got infected. She ended up dying. The mother reached out saying, 
because they were connected to one of our strategic partners, reached out and said, would your church be willing to host this funeral? And if so, will your minister, would he mind preaching the funeral? And it's, it's challenging for any minister to preach a funeral for somebody you don't know because you don't want to preach people into heaven. And you want to honor who they are. So we agreed to do it. The day before the funeral, the mother showed up here at the church. She met with us. She, she handed me a CD. She said there are two songs that we would like to have played at the funeral. One was Guns N' Roses, Knocking on Heaven's Door. The other was Eminem and Rihanna's song, Love the Way You Lie, which is a song about domestic abuse. The song with Eminem and Rihanna ends with a boyfriend who ties the girlfriend up in a house and sets the house on fire. That's how it ends. So I'm thinking to myself, if the request is to play these two songs, like what happened to Amazing Grace or I'll Fly Away or Mansions Over the Hill? Like what happened to any of these other songs? Like, and should I tell them they can't play them or do we let them play them? And then hopefully in some of the content I have to share, I'm able to talk about Jesus and, and try to speak some word into their suffering. We decided we were going to let them play the songs. And it was like the grace of God. Because the day of the funeral, the CD player just all of a sudden wouldn't work. It's like God was like, yeah, we don't need Eminem and Rihanna at the funeral. CD player wouldn't work. We didn't know what to expect for the funeral. About 40 people showed up, but we couldn't start because the mom wasn't there. She was an hour late. She had the ashes. An hour late, she shows up. When she's getting out of the car, of the car she drops the ashes. So then we get everything set up. We're all the way down the hallway in what is now room one, used to be room 115. Everything is set up. And I start the funeral for about 10 minutes. I shared a couple of stories about this woman's life, and then I just tried to just help people understand who Jesus is. Like Jesus enters into the sufferings of the world. This is what we know about Jesus. Spoke a word into brokenness, and then I made one of the biggest mistakes of my ministry career as I opened up the mic to see if anybody else had stories to share. And the first dude, man, he stood up on the back row, his eyes were bloodshot, he stood up and he started cursing at this girl. She's dead, he starts cursing at her. And then he says, I'm her fiance and I've loved her for years. And then the guy stood up on the second row and this guy said, I've been married to my wife for five years, but that girl right there, she has been and will always be the love of my life. And then another guy stood up, and this guy said, I'm also her fiance, and I've loved her for years. And in that moment, I thought, Jerry Springer is about to, like, come through the door. Like, Ashton Kutcher on punk, you know what I mean? Any of like, candy camera. Like, think of, like, I was like, this can't be real, like, and this is how it happened. For an hour, people were sharing these kind of stories. And finally, we brought it to a close, and I went home, and I'm sure I'd laugh with Casey a little bit. Like, you would not believe what just happened, but my heart was so sad. And when I reflect back on it, like, there's just sadness and brokenness in my heart, because here was a woman who endured abuse in her life, and she spent almost all of all, uh, half of her life, she lived life reaching for love, and then numbing the pain for the love she could never find. And how many people are in the world, how many people will you bump into this week? How many people in our churches these days? 
who are reaching for love and then numbing the pain in their life because there is a love they just cannot find. And how many people choose to even lower their moral bar to reach for love that will satisfy and then they find themselves having to numb some of the pain in their life because of the love they cannot find that will satisfy because it's a love that only God can bring. And I wonder for this woman whose funeral I did, like how many nights does she go to bed thinking, is there anyone who loves me? Is there anyone who cares? Is there any community where I belong? And this is where the church steps up. And the church is the one who says, if we live out our vows and our oaths to God, we have answers to those questions. Where will people be loved? Where will they belong? And the church says, here, we're a place you can belong. Two years ago, we launched eight core values in this church. You'll see them on the wall. you see them on our website. Our eight core values are that we courageously anticipate the movement of God, that we boldly raise up discipleship as the mission of the church. We're passionate about connecting people to God, that we willingly stand with the marginalized. We genuinely care about physical and mental health. We're honored to carry a ministry of reconciliation. We strive to give the next generation a compelling story to live into, and we are a restoration movement. Those are our eight core values. And in those eight core values, you do not hear the word family. And some of that was intentional. Because we don't think we need to market our church in a way that says we're safe for the whole family because we want to envision the church as a kind of family where everybody belongs. No matter what your family looks like or if you even have a family, this is a family where everyone has a place at the table. Now, with that said, I know that we as a church can do better, and I can do better speaking into the life of the family. We've chosen to kind of go about thinking about discipleship a lot of the ways Jesus did. Jesus didn't address the family much, but as people make deeper commitments to the heart of God, we believe that the family will get stronger. And I hope we we are a church and that we will continue to be a church where married people will be some of the strongest advocates and partners for single people. Not just for what people may want them to become, but for who they are. For Jesus never said, blessed are the married, or blessed are those who have kids. Jesus said, blessed are those who seek after righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So I hope that we'll always be a church where married people are thinking about how single people, no matter what it is that makes them single, that they have a place in community. And I hope that we will always be a church where single people are rooting for marriages and families and praying for healthy families. Because if we want a church with a healthy youth ministry and children's ministry, we've got to advocate for it. Not just healthy families, but healthy marriages. And Jesus is the one who says, if you were to imagine what the best wedding, the best marriage is, just imagine the very best marriage you can think of. And Jesus says, I covenant like that. Or even, maybe put differently, if you were to think of like the very best marriage, it's like Jesus says, okay, I covenant even better than that. So John chapter 2. There's a wedding, and Jesus goes to the wedding and ends up turning water to wine, which sounds so odd. Now, weddings then were a lot different than they are now. Where now we will spend $5,000 or $150,000 on a 20-minute ceremony with a reception afterwards. 
And back in the first century culture, they would celebrate weddings for seven days. This wasn't just an event you went to one night. You were there and you would party for seven full days. And for the hosts to run out of wine, it was a tragedy. Now, Jews were against excessive drinking except at weddings. And when it came to the, being the, who, the, who the poor were, wine was a luxury, especially for the poor when it came to having access to wine, except at weddings. So I think Jesus knew, or as we'll read the story in a moment, Jesus' mom knew for this couple, for this family and this household to run out of wine, we don't want them entering into their marriage. We don't want them entering into it with shame that is held over them. Here's how the story goes in John chapter 2. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding, and when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They don't have any wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. It it almost sounds like a joke, like Jesus and his mom walked into a bar. Like, have you have you have you heard the story about Jesus when he went to the wedding? Like, all of you have relatives that do stuff like that. It's like they end up at a wedding, and it's Mary who looks at Jesus and says, "You've got to do something about this. They've run out of wine. This is a tragedy. It was an honor and shame culture. This is a tragedy." And she tells Jesus to do something about it, and he did. And in John chapter 2, verse 11, what John says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, for those people who were married there in John chapter 2, we don't know their names. We don't know who they are. But they had been in probably a year-long process of leading up to that marriage. Now, there are a lot of different sources that I've read, and probably some of you have too, of different traditions of how weddings and how marriages would come about in first century culture. And I want to help show you one of them. I did this around 10 years ago in the life of this church. Caroline, do you mind joining me just for a moment? Caroline's going to come up here. And here's part of how, in some places in the Jewish culture, and this is not real wine this morning, all right? This is Gatorade. I don't want you to look up here and think that's a, just a sweet dessert wine, all right? Uh, but here's part of how this, in some places, in Jewish culture, here is one of the traditions where, I mean, up until like that last hundred years, like dating hasn't been a thing, right? Like, you know that. Like, people didn't date. There were somewhat arranged marriages where I, I think there were some places where the woman actually had a say in it, but they were somewhat arranged. So the man and his father would go to a house and would knock on the door, and Caroline, go ahead and knock, open the door. The family of... <laughs> Family would they, would, they would connect. And then the dads, and I joked this morning because Casey was up here, like I just started laughing this morning. Like if, my, like if our two dads had to like settle on a bride price, like it would be the funniest conversation ever. Now, Caroline, even today, like in our culture, we're still one of the only cultures where like the woman and her family like pay for the whole wedding. Like most places in the history of the world, it's the man and his family who paid for it. So they would, they would agree on a bride price. I remember our mission in Zambia, Kip, this was 10, 11 years ago, you probably remember, Thomas came here and stood on this stage, and he, was, he had a fiancé, but it was, he had to, it was seven cows. This woman was worth seven cows, and he didn't have the money to buy seven cows. So as a church, we raised enough money for him to buy seven cows so that he could get married. 
I went home that day and I said, Casey, you were at least a 10 cal girl, all right? That, it, did, it did not go over well at all, all right? But there was a bride price that would be settled on. And then there was this moment when the bride price was settled on where the man would take a glass of wine and he would extend it to the woman. And this was like getting on a knee. He would extend it to the woman and he would say, this is my cup that I offer you. And I'm willing to love you and to lay down my life for you. And then he would give it to her. And in some places, the woman had a choice in this moment. She could drink the cup, sealing the covenant, or she could deny it. So Caroline, if this is just any guy up here right now in this moment, are you going to drink or are you not going to drink? All right. And then the, the covenant would be sealed. That didn't mean they entered into a marriage yet. Because at this point, the man went back home. And the woman went into her house. And now what would happen is the man would go and he would add on to the family home, add on to the insula, where now there is a room that would be added on where he and his family would live. And it's not until he completes that room that his father would approve of the room, meaning that the marriage could happen. So there were no dates for the wedding. There's not like you're sending out invitations of save the date, Saturday of such and such, hey, this is when the wedding's going to happen. It's whenever this guy would finish the room. So even if you're a guy who doesn't know how to use your hands, you would figure it out if you wanted to be married. You got to find some YouTube videos or make sure you got some friends that could help you out. But you add it, and it's not until the father would approve of that room that the bridal session would begin, the wedding procession. And now they would go back to the house where this woman had spent a year of preparation, surrounding herself with godly women, a mother, Grandmother, right, other women who were teaching her what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a woman of God. But she doesn't know at what time this groom is going to come back for her. And when he came back, the celebration would begin. For seven days, they would celebrate their wedding and then enter into their marriage. Thank you so much for helping out this morning. So John begins his gospel. The first miracle is a wedding. And in John chapter 14, it's the final discourse that Jesus gives his followers right before he dies. And in John chapter 14, here's what Jesus says. And keep this in mind based on how I just walked you through what an engagement and a betrothal and a marriage would look like in that culture. Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God believe also in me in my father's house there are many dwelling places and if it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am there you may be also and you know the way to the place where I'm going and Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And every Sunday when we take the wine, we take the bread, we're reminded of his covenant. Where Jesus is the one who entered into a marriage with his people. And Jesus said, you want to know who's paying the bride price? I am. I'm paying the whole price. I'm paying it with my life. I'm laying it down. I think you are worth dying for. 
And now Jesus extends the cup and asks us to respond. And every Sunday when we take communion, it's a reminder of how Jesus has said yes and how Jesus keeps saying yes to us. And it is a reminder that Jesus keeps asking you to say yes to him. And if there's anyone in the room or online who has never said yes to Jesus, you have never surrendered your life, confessed Jesus as Lord, or been baptized in the Christ, step to Jesus today. He's extending the cup to you. And for those of you who have, Jesus is extending the cup. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 20 in the Passover, Jesus says this. He did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And now Jesus is gone to prepare rooms for us. And Jesus is worth waiting on. And as we wait, we don't sit there on a couch with our hands folded. We wait as people who are preparing ourselves for a marriage that will last forever. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? For God, this morning as we take the bread and the cup, we are reminded of your yes to us and the invitation that just keeps coming. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, may we recite our oaths and our vows to you as we don't just say yes in this moment, but we live like we have said yes throughout this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please take the bread and cup.